Today's sermon text is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, everybody, it's good to see you this morning. We're going to continue with our very non-controversial series called Politicking, and, uh, or po- Politicking, if you want to emphasize it properly, I guess. Um, if you'll notice in your bulletin, there is a short outline we've begun to include for the morning sermon. So if you don't have something to take notes on, you can take notes there. It's a little space, but it should work for you a little bit. Um, I might say two or three important things today, and that's all you really need to remember. So um, just want to give you a quick outline of where we're going. We're talking today about what does Christian political action and discourse look like? What does Christian political action and discourse look like? What is it, or maybe better said, what does it feel like? What does it feel like? And so we're going to cover three big topics. The first is this, as followers of Jesus, we have a new identity which totally informs the way we think about politics in our world. The second thing is this. We have a crucial task related to our new identity in Jesus. We have a crucial task. And then finally, we have a better hope. We have a hope that is better than who may or may not be elected. We have a better hope than that. So it's not the end of the world or it's not the beginning of the world in November. We have a better hope. So we're going to go ahead and get into it. Verse 11, the scriptures say this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does Peter call followers of Jesus in this text? It's okay. Say it out loud. I want you to. Sojourners and exile. Are you looking at the answers up there? You are. So sojourners and exiles. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, we often think of stuff like lust or generically anger and rage just sort of generic sort of sins. And we think, well, I need to stay away from that. I shouldn't be looking at, you know, internet pornography or I shouldn't be, you know, get, you know, you know, screaming at my wife or my husband or my kids or something like that. But I want you to ask yourself, in relation to politics and especially political discourse on social media, in conversation, but mostly social media where we become courageous keyboard warriors, I want you to ask yourself a question. As a sojourner and an exile, 
when he commands us to abstain from passions of the flesh, could it be that the way that we do and express political views related to legislative issues, related to the current uh, uh, electoral process, could it be that that would be qualified, that could qualify as a passion of the flesh? If, if it leads to a, a war that is waged against your soul, if it makes you mean, if it removes your ability to be tender with people, if you don't have the ability to understand someone else's perspective, I'm not, say, I'm not saying agree with someone else's perspective, but are you humble enough to even have your mind changed or in our pride have we already made up our mind, drawn battle lines, and there's no way I'm stepping across to think in somebody else's shoes? Is it even possible for your mind to be changed? Or are we so entrenched in political warfare that it's a lost cause? These issues wage war against our souls. And I love what Peter does here right at the outset. He doesn't say, I urge you as Republicans and Democrats. He said, I urge you as in, at, at their deepest level of identity. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. People that are passing through. People that are not in their homeland. People that are members, citizens of a greater country. A more beautiful country. And I can't believe that guy hating on America right now. I'm not hating on America. I'm a proud American citizen. I love our country. I love our country. But is the center of our identity the stars and the stripes or the bloody cross of Jesus? What is it? At the center of our identity, is it the stars and stripes? Is it party affiliation or is it the bloody cross of Jesus? Thank you. I was looking for that one. Amen. Amen. I want to hear that. I like that. I like amens. Um, so he says, he appeals to them being sojourners. And you can't help when you read this, but to think about the Israelite community, the Hebrew community that was freshly delivered from Egypt on their way to the promised land, and they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and the scriptures often refer to them as sojourners. They weren't at home. They were headed somewhere else. Yes, for a time, they had to learn how to make life in the wilderness. It was hard. It was difficult. There were complexities. But they weren't home there. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was the land of promise. He calls them exiles. Exiles And anybody who's really familiar with the Jewish history knows that about five or six hundred years before Jesus, actually almost, almost a, over 700 years before Jesus, it, uh, Israel was uh, um, uh, invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians invaded northern Israel, obliterated it. 
There are ten tribes that belong to the nation of Israel we've never heard from again as a result of that. God judged Israel for their sin. And then about 150 years later, the Babylonians, the next big empire, the next big bad boy on the block, invaded southern Israel, Judah, carried them away into captivity, into Mesopotamia, the land of Babylon, modern-day Iraq, carried away into slavery. And for a century, the Israelites, the Jews who survived that Babylonian invasion, lived in this foreign land where they didn't belong. They were called the exilic community. The, la- the community of exiles, the Jews who were carried away, away from home. And Peter, writing to Jewish believers, is saying to them, as Christians, you are currently sojourners, just like Moses and the Hebrew, and the Hebrew nation that was living in the, land, in the wilderness. And just like the, the tribes, the, uh, the Israelites, the Jews who were in Babylon, people like Daniel and Esther, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, and Ezekiel. Great, great men and women of God in exile. He says, you are like them where you're living right now. You've not found your homeland. Your homeland is yet to be realized. This is who you are as followers of Jesus. This is who you are. I love what Hebrews 11 verses 13 13 through 16 says. Speaking of the great Old Testament heroes of the faith, people like Abraham and Joshua and Rahab and different people, heroes of our faith, he says this, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Listen to these words closely like you've never heard them before. Hebrews is sort of a difficult book to read, so probably you haven't, maybe you've not heard these before or haven't read them in a long, long time. So listen to these words. These, all these heroes... These people died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Now, some of the people listed in Hebrews 11 lived in the promised land. He's saying they never saw the promised land. What does he mean by that? They greeted them from afar. It was like they could reach out and touch it, but they were never able to live in the promised land. And he goes on to say this, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, not in Babylon, not in Assyria, not anywhere else, strangers on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. People who refer to themselves as exiles, they make it clear, this isn't my homeland. I'm headed somewhere else. He continues. Verse 15. If they had been thinking of the land which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Whoa. So just to make sure we're clear, I know I say this, everybody, all the time, probably every week. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. Because this is our blessed hope as followers of Jesus. Just to make sure we're all clear, 
He's not, when he says heavenly country or heavenly city, he's not talking about us being disembodied, floating in another dimension. He is talking about the heavenly country that all of our loved ones go to that is immaterial and spiritual right now. Yesterday morning, Becky and I lost a dear, dear friend, 36-year-old girl whose body's been riddled with cancer for two years. And sweet Carly, yesterday at 6.15 a.m., went home to be with Jesus. Her body will be buried on Monday. Her body is here. Her spirit is is with the King of Kings and she is gazing into the face of eternal beauty right now. But there will be a day, my friends, that Carly will come with Jesus and everyone you have ever known who has died in Christ will return with Christ and bring with them a new city that is physical. People, followers of Jesus will be resurrected and we will live in a new earth with new heavens and we will be able to look into the face of God and we will have physical bodies. That's what heaven will be like for us. And we will run on this earth and play on this earth and eat on this earth and celebrate on this earth and enjoy the presence of Yahweh forever. That is our future as followers of Jesus. This is what the scriptures mean when it says a heavenly city, a heavenly country. This is the country that Abraham said, that's home. When Jacob thought about home, that's home. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thought about home, that is home. Rome might be great. America might have its benefits, but that is my eternal dwelling place. That is. Now, if that freaks out your American politics, you might have some idolatry in your life. Love your country, but don't anoint your country. Be a faithful, law-abiding citizen. Love your country. But your country is not in the Bible as an end-time dwelling place for the people of God. Heaven is the end time dwelling place for the people of God. Well, does that mean that I don't want good things to happen in my country? Of course we want good things to happen in our country. We don't want poverty to be here. We don't want injustice to be rampant in the streets. But our hope is not set on an earthly country. Our hope is set on heaven. Our hope is set on heaven. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. That's our citizenship. That's our identity. Our identity more than being black, white, Republican, Democrat, American, Nigerian. Our our identity is heavenly. That's our country. That's our country. That's our country. He also said in 1 Peter 2, 5, just a few verses earlier in this text, he says these words, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, you are living stones being built into a spiritual house. He means a temple. We're a temple. Everyone who follows Jesus is a living stone, a living, breathing, organic stone, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And connected together, we house the presence of the living God. 
Now, that's a political statement Peter made. We don't think about it because in our world, after the Enlightenment philosophy took root in Western civilization, church and state became separated. In that day and age, church and state was one and the same. So when he talks about the temple, how we are the temple of God, every ancient Jew would have read that and thought, wow, that's like saying that God has made us living stones and he has assembled us together to be the White House, to be Capitol Hill. Because the temple was not just where you went to sing, sing songs, sing songs, sing songs. That's not the only place you, that's not the only thing you did there. That's where laws were written. That's where laws were enforced. Everything, the temple was the center of Jewish culture. The temple was the capital of Israel. And he says, in this new country that we are part of, this new Jerusalem, this heavenly kingdom, we, anointed followers of Jesus, are living stones. We are the capital hill of the new Jerusalem. That's what we are. Now, that can be sentimental and be like, oh, that's an interesting thought. Pretty cool. (laughs) Did you hear that? That was pretty cool. You know, or it can be something deeper than that. Am I through and through when you cut me a citizen of heaven? What, as I asked last week, is my controlling center? What is my controlling center? I want to say it again. I love America. I know some of y'all, when you get behind that email, you're going to say crazy stuff to me. I love our country. But more than being an American, I am a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. I got excited, man. We obliterated people in the Olympics. I loved it. It was awesome. I love that we had like a 6,000 medal lead. I love that. That was awesome. Um, it wasn't actually 6,000. It was more like 70 or something. I don't know. But anyway, it was, it was awesome. I love that. I felt pride about that. Man, our pride's got to go deeper than the red, white, and blue, man. The cross needs to be our controlling center. The cross. So, is there political idolatry in your life? Is there? One way you can figure out if there's political idolatry in your life is follow the path. Where does your anger take you? Where does your anxiety take you? When I talk about idols, I talk about worshiping things or allowing things to to control my identity other than Jesus Christ. If something else controls my identity, if I get really angry about that thing or anxious about that thing, I know that's an idol in my life. I know that it's my controlling center. And man, the reason we're doing this series is because over the last few months, some of the discourse that we've seen in the public, social media and beyond, has been ugly and mean-spirited and crazy at times by Christians. Our controlling center often is not the Holy Spirit. It's something else. We've got to fight that. These passions are making war against our souls. War. War. Our political discourse and our political action, my friends, must be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. We must be active. We must be active. Why do I say we must be active? Because unlike the ancient Jews and and the ancient civilizations in which the Bible was written in that time, we're not living in an empire where we have no rights, no civil rights. 
They had no rights back then. Some people get mad at Paul because Paul didn't try to take down the institution of slavery. There was no Republican representation for Paul to appeal to. There was no political recourse that Paul had. He had to make do in a world that was the way it was at that time. And that's why he said, Masters, treat your slaves kindly. Respect them. Honor them. And he said, Servants, do the same thing to your masters. It's hard to talk about that because in our country, the picture that comes to mind is the atrocious and irredeemable institution of American slavery, which is a scourge on our nation's history. But that is not what the biblical authors had in mind when they told their servants to submit to their masters. That's not what they had in mind. Paul did not live in a representative form of government. He did not live in a democratic republic where they had senators that he could appeal to or congressmen. He couldn't vote out Caesar. They didn't like Caesar. That didn't happen. Today, we have that political recourse. And because we have that political recourse, we should be politically active because from cover to cover in our Bible, we are told, make sure you speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Make sure you do that. The pressure is not off of us just to do that. We still need to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And even though we are functioning in a fallen political framework, a fallen political construct, we still have a degree of recourse and we should use that to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. I like that phrase, speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Because part of political idolatry in America is we speak for ourselves. We should speak for ourselves. I'm not saying that we shouldn't promote a better life. But first and foremost on our political agenda is our own comfort. And the scriptures tell us you be other-centered. And you speak for others who can't speak for themselves. That should be a major piece of the way that we do politics. That should be a major piece. Political discourse and political action must be spirit-filled. Must be. Must be. What do I mean by that? We are to be active, but we are to be missional. Non-believers and ideological adversaries are not our enemies. They're not. So quit mocking them on Facebook. They're not your enemies. Do we really believe what Paul said that we fight not against flesh and blood but against spiritual powers and principalities in the high places? Do we actually believe that? Because I think a lot of our behavior often feels like, no, our principalities are the people that I look at on my Facebook newsfeed. Why can you do this? Because if you were a follower of Jesus... You are a sojourner. You are an exile. You are a Jesus person. And because you are a Jesus person, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, alive, speaking through you, living through you. I know you don't feel it all the time, but He is in you. And because He is in you, like the Scriptures say, you have everything you need for life and godliness in this world. Everything you need everything. You're not being told anything this morning that you don't already have access to. 
But if your identity is rooted more in American politics and the American way of life than it is in Jesus, it is always going to elude you. You will never be able to reach out and grab that. You won't be able to do it. Only people who fully identify with Jesus, which is why we have this thing called water baptism. I go down into a watery grave. I die. My opinions die. My worldview dies. My politics dies if it needs to. Everything dies. And I am raised up in Jesus with a new view of life, controlled by the scriptures, anointed and saturated by the Holy Spirit, shaped in the believing community of of saints. You don't experience this if you don't fully identify with Jesus. You are a Jesus person, not a Republican. You are a Jesus person, not a Democrat. You are a Jesus person. That's who you are. Your vote may align with one of those parties and great, whatever, that's cool. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. But more than your party affiliation, you are a Jesus person. And because you're a Jesus person, you do politics different than non-Jesus people. We do it differently. Our posture must be sensitive, caring, and humble. We come not with an axe to grind, not with a bone to pick. We come like Jesus, meek, peacemaking, mercy-giving. That's the posture of our politics. So the first one, we've got a new identity. We are faithful exiles. Second one, we have a crucial task, heaping good upon our world. Did you know that as a Christian, that is your primary politic? Heaping good upon your world. Heaping it. Just look at this whole text. I want you to read, just just follow along silently as I read this out loud one more time because it's throughout this entire text. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The only sense I can make of that sentence is that our social goodness is so front and center assaulting that it becomes missional and people who used to mock us and slander us come over to our side and join the Jesus movement because the goodness of our society is so compelling. That's what I think Peter means here when he says that. Our goodness is so compelling. Verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, every one of them, every framework, every construct, be subject to it. Whether it be to the emperor who tortured Christians back in those days as supreme 
or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now here he's talking about the general understanding of politics. Politics can often be corrupt and abused. But generally, God established human politics, even though it's fallen and broken, generally to punish evil and to praise good works. He's speaking generally here. That as you do good works and live a compellingly good lifestyle, a righteous lifestyle, as you submit to governors and emperors and leaders, you will be praised and not punished. You'll be praised and not punished. That's not a guarantee that we won't experience some sort of persecution. That happens in history. But generally speaking, people who live a compellingly good life will be praised by authority figures. Policemen should be able to look at us and say, man, those Jesus people, wow. I don't believe what they believe, but man, they are good people. They are good people. Politicians should look at us and not feel like we're eating out of their hands seeking political power. But I can't make them compromise. But man, those people are good people. They're people of conviction. They do good works. It's tough to keep up with what they do to serve others. Politicians should have this view of us. That might seem idealistic, but you, you need to call Peter an idealist then. For this is the will of God. Anybody want to know what the will of God is for your life? This is the will of God that by doing good... Man, there's a lot of goodness here. It's almost like, does he even believe the gospel? Of course he believes the gospel because he's talking to people who are born again and filled with the Spirit. These are the people he's talking to and he's telling them, be good in your world. We published a 23-point prayer list that we handed out for two Sundays in a row. And one of those prayer points is that our church would be good and do good in the marketplace and in their neighborhoods. We're not talking about be good so that God will save us. We're already saved if you believe in Jesus. We're talking about doing good unto others to serve them and love them and nurture them in the kingdom of God. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He doesn't say, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people through your Facebook feed. I'm not saying you shouldn't say those comments. I had a guy tell me last week, he said, man, every time I post something on Facebook, I'm thinking, what does Chris Bennett think right now? Um, I don't read Facebook much anymore, so you're, you're pretty safe. You're pretty safe. I don't read Facebook much anymore. Just my thing. Um, I, don't like, I don't like getting angry because it fuels the passions of my flesh. I don't want to be put in that position. But that's me. That, that you may not have that weakness that I have. Really, really. You may not have that weakness. And if so, God bless you, grace to you. Pray for me. Pray for me. Really, pray for me. I want to grow in not being agitated by stuff like that. But he doesn't say to debate people and beat them in arguments. He says the will of God is that we would be so good that our lives would be compelling to people who don't even agree with us. That's what what God's will is for our life. That we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's not saying foolish like fool. You know, he's not like a cut down. He's just saying people who disagree with the gospel, who reject Jesus. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, don't adopt the bad idea that because I'm in grace and I'm saved, the pressure's off to be good now. Peter here's calling that out as bad teaching. He said, don't give into that. That's right, it's heresy. It's bad. Don't give into that. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Whoa. He's saying, honor people. Honor people. Honor people. My friends, what does it mean to honor someone? Don't get out a Bible dictionary. Just, just What does it mean to honor someone? Respect. What else? What co- Somebody back there real quick. I heard a female voice back there. Value someone. David. Wow. So we're talking about honoring being appealing to their human dignity. Okay, what else? What does it mean to honor people? Putting them above ourselves. Do you all agree with these definitions? Just sort of intuitive definitions. Anything else come to mind? What does it mean to honor someone? To respect? Okay. I'm sorry, Jimmy? Hold in high esteem. esteem. Man, that's like got Colossians 2 written all over it, what he just said in Philippians 2. A seat. What? Ready to serve serve people. Yeah. So it's not just like thinking about them in some way. It's acting to them, moving toward them to honor them. Wow. All those things he says, look in verse 17. He says, honor everyone. Do your enemies qualify for everyone? Do the people who say, quote-unquote, crazy things on social media, do they qualify as everyone? I want to give you a challenge. If I stop here today and say, okay, guys, now start honoring everyone, go. We're all going to fail this week. But can you think of one person in your life who particularly sticks your crawl. Can can you think of one person in your life who gets under your skin? I see this collective grimace on everybody's face here. You're thinking about that guy, Stephanie. If you're a Stephanie, I don't mean you. Uh, just the first thing that came to mind. How, do you, how can you honor that person? Don't answer me out loud, but I want you to think about this. I want you to write on your notes, since everybody takes notes in our church, I want you to write in your notes the name of one person that you will begin to pray for every day and move toward to begin honoring. I'm not saying you've got to do that with every person who's a knucklehead. One person in your life. One person. Think about that for about 20 seconds. Who is that person? Don't say it out loud. It might be somebody in this room. It might be me. Don't hurt my feelings. So um, write down that person. Okay. Will you pray for that person every day? Honor them in prayer. Honor them with your words and honor them by moving toward them.
they may not respond. The point is not to get them to respond. The point is to honor people and to break this destructive, toxic, demonic cycle that so many people in the church have found themselves in where we have these categories of people. I have to be nice to my church friends, but I can be a real blankety-blank to that person. We've got to abolish those categories. He says, honor everyone. Everyone. Even the emperor who is vicious and evil. I want to skip down to my last point really quick and just end with this. We have a better hope. And my friends, that hope is Jesus' glorious appearing. That is our better hope. I love what he says here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Anybody in here who cuts your own grass knows that if you want to make a straight line, you can't just look at the grass right in front of your mower. Or you're going to feel like it's straight, and then you're going to look back and it goes like this. But if you're going to cut a straight line in your yard, make it look good, manicured, and professional, and cause neighbors to drive by going, whoa, you know, if you want that to happen, then what you're going to have to do is find a fixed point on the curb or the street or your driveway and look at that point and you can sort of look down some, straighten your mower out a little bit, and as you're going along, you keep your eye on that fixed point. When you look back, it'll generally be pretty straight. I'm not saying to get your eyes off the current political process. I think it's healthy to be engaged in this. I really do. I think it's healthy to form and shape political ideology and opinion. Even talk about it with people. But I'm talking about the difference between that and being so emotionally invested in the next election that we think the world is going to run off a cliff if the wrong person's elected. Remember what I talked about last week? What was, the first, what was one, of, one of my points? Don't panic. Don't panic. Keep your eye on the fixed point of Jesus' return when the new country, the better nation, will descend with him. That will give us, as we focus on that, endurance, perseverance, and class to be political people here now. Our eyes must be set on a fixed point of Jesus' return when he will make all things new. Our eyes must be set on that. There's a few more things I want to say today, but one of the changes we're making in our service is we're trying to end, not just end the sermon earlier, but we want to make sure that there's room at the end of the message so that we can continue to qualitatively fellowship together. We're not trying to run you out of here. What we want to be able to do at the end of each message is to fellowship over the Lord's Supper. And so what we're going to do today is take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Everyone who calls themselves a believer who follows Jesus, is welcome to the Lord's table. We have tables, uh, stations up front, halfway down in the very back. We're letting out a lot earlier these days. So we got a lot, a lot of time. We're not trying to fill up a bunch of time here. But we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and then after the Lord's Supper, we're going to officially conclude the service by giving a congregational blessing, speaking a blessing over you. And I hope you hang around for that. Friends, you are dear to me. I love you. 
I take my responsibility seriously to craft environments that nurture your Christian faith. I hope that when you walk away today, you will keep that in mind. I'm not trying to pick a fight with the Democrats or the Republicans or any other party affiliation in, in, in this world. I have no, no agenda to do that. My agenda is simply to call us to a higher place, to love Jesus, to see Jesus as the answer, the answer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. You are good. And I pray, Lord God, that all of us would have the courage to look under the hood of our lives and to see, is there any idolatry in my life that needs to be repented of, that needs to be confronted? Where does my anger take me? Where does my anxiety lead me? Because it always takes us away from you, Jesus. Passions that war against our souls. So Lord, I pray your blessing on each person here as they think about this and consider this in approaching the Lord's table, your table. In Jesus' name, amen.